Hello there. Welcome into another formation episode of the Edge Kingsland podcast. We are in a little series at the moment called Why Faith Matters, and the real impetus for this series has been the fact that for, for many of us, we've, we've worked at pulling apart perhaps some of the old notions of the kind of binary form of, of faith where it's, where it's all about heaven versus hell, it's all about getting in versus being out, it's all about getting on the train to glory uh, and sort of securing your ticket and then trying to drag as many people on board as possible along the way. And in pulling apart some of those old ways of thinking about faith, uh, we're left with the question, I suppose, uh, what then is the point of faith? <laughs> because what happens for us is that we live our lives with a sense of meaning. This is one of the big questions of the human experience. You know, what one of the most profound questions that humans ask of themselves. What's the meaning of life? What does life mean? What is, what, what, why does the, any of this matter at all? And, and we glean that sense of meaning from the stories that we're embedded within. And so whether that's the stories our society and culture tells or the stories that our faith and religious traditions tell us, you know, those stories give us a sense of meaning. And I've been thinking about this, I suppose, because as we challenge and, and sometimes disrupt some of the um, the stories that we've either told ourselves or, or been told in our lives, uh, that can also feel deeply kind of unsettling and uncomfortable because that challenges the sense of why our, the meaning of our life, of, of why our life matters, and, uh, and in particular in relation to faith and religion, you know, why our faith matters. Um, because if, if this isn't then about what I thought it was about, uh, is there still a point to any of this? And so we're trying to explore some of the themes that, that I think still uh, remind us and challenge us and confront us to why Christian faith in particular might still matter in the 21st century life beyond kind of a let's all get on the glory ship to, to heaven town kind of uh, mentality. So uh, in the last episode, uh, we explored a conversation around presence over ideology, which is that one of the really profound things offered within the Christian faith in particular is this idea that God becomes present to us rather than um, rather than becomes present to us. God is known as present to us rather than here's a belief system to adopt. Now, um, that's not to say that beliefs aren't important because they really do matter. But what it means is, that, I guess, the, the, the point of faith um, isn't just to intellectually comprehend and grasp a set of ideas uh, and beliefs, but to cultivate an awareness of some sense of presence. Um, and and that's important, I think, not just kind of personally and spiritually, but that's important in a, in a wider sense in terms of the fact that we live in a time and in a place and in a world that is so um, ideologically kind of uh, um, them versus us, in versus out, whether that's religion or politics or, or other cultural kind of paradigms. They simply, you know, they simply kind of tell you to get on board with this set of ideas uh, and then and then try and get everyone else to agree with your set of ideas. And again, I'm, you know, I'm a theologian, so I'm not opposed to ideas. Otherwise, I'd do myself out of a job. I think ideas do matter. I think beliefs do matter. Um, but there's a there's a deeper kind of idea we're invited into here that says um, that, that says there's kind of an invitation to an awareness of of, of presence, um, and that that becomes a challenge for the way we interact with others. Also, what what are we offering? people? What are we offering others, if not a sense of ourselves rather than just a set of ideas that we have? And I'd, sometimes ideas are easier 
to try and uh, pass on than it is to offer our lives, ourselves, our own presence. It's easier for me to say caring for the suffering really matters as an idea and to convince other people of that idea. It's actually, in, in many respects, easier for me to say that than it is to actually care for the suffering myself. Um, so so that, that idea of presence over our ideology isn't, isn't saying belief isn't important, but it's saying that actually there's something a little more important than belief, and that's actually, that's actually the sense of presence, whether it be the divine presence to us or our presence to one another. So that was last time. Uh, this time I want to reflect on the idea of grace over status. And, um, you know, grace is such an interesting idea because it's, it's, a, it's a term that is pervasive throughout the Christian faith. Um, I certainly spent much of my life talking about grace in a particular kind of way. And so what I want to offer today is maybe a different way of thinking about grace, or at least a, a deeper or, or a more broad way of thinking about grace. Um, and then and then relate that to the conversation around status and, and hierarchy and, and how this idea of grace that we find within the Christian faith is still incredibly important to us here and now. So earlier in my life, I suppose one of the ways I, I heard about or, or heard the term grace defined was as this idea of undeserved favor, you know, and is wrapped up in a particular way of thinking about salvation, I think, you know, um, that that sort of frames up the conversation as, you know, we, we are not deserving of God's love or of God saving us because because we're sort of, you know, we're pretty terrible, <laughs> really. And um, and look, there's maybe there's an element to which we are all fractured and a bit broken and capable of some harmful ways of being in the world, right? And so this way of understanding grace kind of amplifies that stuff and says, because of how kind of bad and sinful and, and, uh, and so on you are, you're undeserving of God's uh, love and favor toward you, but um, but God's going to give it to you anyway through Jesus, and so there's an undeserved favor, you know. So I heard that phrase a lot of times, especially in my twenties, perhaps. Grace is the undeserved or unmerited favor of God, and there's like there's a there's a layer of 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 real insight in there, I think. But there's also there's also a way of emphasizing that that can um, be a bit of a double edged sword, which is. Um, you know, it's encouraging in a sense of look how good God is and that it doesn't matter what you've done. God is still, you know, able to love you and, and save you and so on. But the the kind of way it's indiscriminately applied to everybody everywhere at all times, you, you know, the unspoken kind of implicit theology is that you are you are an incredibly undeserving person. And and we don't just tell that to the to the I don't know, the person that we think has has done a lot of wrong. We tell that to the four, five, six year old in, in Sunday school. You're oh God has given you know, you're you're undeserving, but God has given it to you anyway. And it's kind of meant to be encouraging and there's a current there's an encouraging layer to it, but there is an unspoken kind of theology that sits underneath it. Um that kind of emphasizes your depravity and your undeservedness and can sometimes, you know, shape up a thing where God is sort of God is so good that even though you're just the worst person ever, God is like, all right, I'll still love you, you know. And that's kind of nice, <laughs> but also but also not nice somehow. Somehow it's both of those things at the same time. So I feel like that's a it's a it's a shallow or a it's it, you're in the shallow end of the pool in a way of understanding grace when you when you frame it up in that way. And so you you end up with some problems as well as the kind of um as long as the kind as well as the kind of beauty you're trying to capture as well. Um, 
So I want to suggest that there's a there's a there's a richer and, and perhaps more broad and more important way of understanding what's captured in the word grace, um, and it is connected to what we were just saying, but I think it goes further and 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 wider, and it's connected to this idea that sort of beyond anything we can or can't do, beyond anything we possess or do not possess, beyond anything we are or we aren't, uh, every human being is given the sense of dignity or worth or value by God. Um, so rather than the idea, perhaps, of even though you're terrible, God loves you anyway, it's actually God, in the first instance, names you as having dignity and value and worth, regardless of who you are and what you do. And so you can see how those ideas are kind of connected, but, but there's a distinction between them. Uh, there's this sense that every human being is created with this profound and deep sense of dignity, worth, and value. And that's kind of the starting point rather than the look how terrible you are. And because that's the starting point, then there's nothing you can kind of do to shake or to change that. There's nothing you can do to alter that. Now, um, that's not just, I suppose, a spiritual idea in the sense of, oh, isn't that nice because God loves me. But but it's a it's an idea that has you know really deep implications for human human uh, human community and society, um, ethics, politics, all sorts of stuff. Right now, we we kind of take it for granted in the contemporary world. I think that every person has an inherent kind of worth, dignity, and value, or at least we we think we take that for granted. We take that for granted as an idea, even if we don't do it in practice. And you know the 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 Black Lives Matter matter. Um, protests and conversations that have come up in recent times that are causing all of us in the West, I think, to um, have those conversations that should have been had already uh, and have been had among some communities, especially those who, who have suffered under the weight of injustice, um, but those conversations that haven't taken place within, within the, in particular, the white communities, you know. So, so there we can see even in, even in that um, there's this layer of holding to an ideal that isn't always put into practice. That isn't always applied to everybody uh, in equal measure. And yet the ideal still is kind of there in contemporary society that we can appeal to. And, and when we appeal to that, there's a sense of, yes, every person has an inherent worth, dignity, and value. Uh, the language of human rights kind of emerges out of that kind of idea. But it's also good to note, I suppose, that that's not always been the case throughout human history. Um, that kind of thing we take for granted now to some degree again, with some caveats, but we take for granted the idea that we can appeal to the, the human rights and dignity of every person. Uh, this idea is a relatively recent idea. And, um, and throughout human history, human beings have long thought of each other, not as all having equal value and worth, but actually in relation to various status markers that tell us what a person is worth or, or why they matter. So, you know, um, I guess within, within sort of Biblical and theological circles, you've got um, a lot of analysis of the ancient Greco-Roman system, which had this very um, entrenched status system upon which the empire was built and really relied upon that status system being upheld. And so uh, whether it was, um, you know, the role of slaves and women and children and then people who worked with their hands and then you worked your way up to kind of, you know, uh, soldiers and then nobles and philosophers and ultimately the emperor. And this kind of status system... Is, is the thing that kept the empire running. And so you couldn't, if you were a slave, you couldn't you know, suddenly jump um, all of those rungs of the status system. And so you might have value, but you didn't have an equality of value or worth within that system. Uh, we, seem, we see similar kind of ideas within perhaps the caste system in, in, in places like India at times, um, reinforced through notions of 
of a reincarnation, you know. So you're kind of you're poor because in a past life you were you were bad. Uh, and so you've been born into this caste here and now to essentially uh, learn your lesson and to um, work hard and to keep your head down and do what you need to do so that in the next life maybe things will be a bit better for you. And that kind of reinforces the sense of entrenching a caste system because you're where you are because you're supposed to be there. And you, you see the same thing within the kind of Western history of, of Britain and the and you know the the, the royalty lines and, and the idea of nobility and the commoners and the serfs and you know the peasants and, and, and the nobles, that whole system that says you can't really change your station uh, and you are who you are and you're worth what you're worth and and this idea of equal worth and value and rights, democracy and all that kind of stuff, right? That's not in the conversation. That's not in, in the in the mind or in the framework. Of course, we could talk about gender and the way in which men and women have been. Um, seen differently throughout, um, in particular Western society. Uh, I don't, I don't know as much about the conversation within other societies, but I can say from a Western perspective, you know, the the entrenchment of patriarchy and the way in which men, you know, had the vote. Men were the ones who owned property, and it, for much part, many parts of human history, women were property of the men. Uh, and even once that stopped, there's still the kind of the levels of status and, and worth and value tied to gender. Um, we're taken for granted and we're seen as the norm. Uh, we could talk about slavery and the way in which slavery was entrenched within different societies. And again, slaves had worth and value, but not the same kind of worth and value that a that a slave owner would, would have. And many of those systems of slavery were also tied into a system of racial status and hierarchy. Um, and that, you know, it flows even into New Zealand's own history. Uh, of of kind of the colonizers coming in and, and the civilized and the uncivilized or the the heathens and the Christians or you know all, all of these ways of kind of um, differentiating between um, those of greater value and those of lesser value or those of greater worth or less worth. So this idea that every human person has an e equal sense of rights, dignity, and worth is in fact not. Um, taken for granted within human history, but I think is embedded, even though the Christian church hasn't all, always grasped this, is embedded deeply within the Christian story itself. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is the early kind of first few centuries of, of, of the Christian church that helped uh, reshape some of the conversation and set us on a trajectory within the West toward the kind of uh, human rights language that we use now. So there's a, there's a, there is, for all of its faults, also an impact that the church has had on that conversation. Um, and you know, we could, having looked at some of those historical things, we could, we could ask ourselves the questions now. Despite our ideals, what are some of the contemporary ways that we continue to ascribe difference in status and value to different human beings? You know, and so we've already mentioned, of, of course, the Black Lives Matter conversation that's taking place, particularly in the U.S. out of their context, but is. Um, challenging and prompting you know places like New Zealand to have renewed conversations about uh, about our history about but not just about our history about how our history impacts on the present um, about notions of what it means to live with more privilege because of your race for example what it means to uh, to live in a kind of colonial post-colonial country what that means for indigenous people you know for, for, for New Zealand for us to ask what it means that that the government kind of systemically, um, you know, mistreated um, Pacifica people in the way that they brought them into the country and then treated them uh, economically and 
and in other ways. So, you know, there's lots of ways we could think about the structure of our society as it is now and see that we've structured things in a way so that even if we say we hold to an ideal of equal value and worth, we've kind of set up society to work in a way that works better for some than for others. And um, we've also got, I guess, kind of status and value that we apply to, to class, even though if we don't have the 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 more rigid class systems, even in places like Britain used to have, you know, um, our kind of class system is a bit more insidious than that, and it's a bit more unseen, and sometimes it's actually harder to spot, but that makes it harder to to upturn as well, because, you know, definitely people with wealth who are able to dress a certain way and look a certain way and, and own certain things hold more power, hold more worth, we might say, within our contemporary society than those who don't. So there is that kind of embeddedness within within our communities still. Uh, and it may, maybe in more recent times, even even the whole kind of you know celebrity status, the way that that kind of functions, and I think New Zealand has this very kind of cute um, cynicism towards celebrity status. But at the same time, you know, we... we we are in a world where, where we elevate some and, and when we do so, it's often at the expense of others. So often what flows out of these kind of status systems are unjust and oppressive ways of being in community with one another, of building human societies. And, and of course, this happens in religious systems too, right? And it's one of the things that Jesus, I think, as I read the New Testament, seems to be most concerned with, or at least very concerned with, you know, when he keeps pushing against certain ways of framing up religion and his time and place um, and so his confrontation of of religious leaders not because they're religious but because of the way in which they're using and co-opting religion to set up these kind of in-out status systems whereby they are of course the most powerful and important um, and you know so much of what Jesus did challenged challenged this notion of, of, of religion being used to entrench status systems and so his his very notable eating with the wrong people, you know, hanging out with the wrong people. The first, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This kind of upside down kingdom the, uh, theme that we see within within Jesus. Um, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, okay, so so there's all of that status stuff going on. So I want to come back now to the idea of grace and see how that fits into the conversation, right? Um, and it actually, it doesn't begin with Jesus in many senses. It comes right back to, you know, one of um, Israel's first creation kind of mythologies. And um, in the, the Genesis 1 version of the creation story, uh, all of humanity is created to image God, in the image of God, the imago Dei, the, the Latin phrase that's often used. And in many respects, that's that's compared with the nations around them, you know. So there's a, there's a, there's a definite kind of revolutionary... Um, uh, sentiment to this uh, when you think about you know the Israelites kind of rescue from Egypt as slaves where where they were much less than in terms of their worth and value uh, and they came from a country came out of slavery in a country where the king or the pharaoh uh, is you know almost divine in status um, and they were at the bottom of that system and so they the, the creation story they tell uh, and, and that's that's not uncommon in the ancient Near East at that time. But the story that they tell in ancient Israel is of this idea that all of human beings are, are created in the image of God. And again, here's a real here's a real benefit, if you like, an insight given when when these stories of faith are actually told from from kind of minority and uh, minority perspectives or from the underside of power, which so much of Israel's story is told from, is that we get a different kind of insight here. 
And, um, and so I think the story of Jesus is flooded with this kind of idea that all human beings have inherent dignity and worth, right? Which is why, coming back to this idea, he spends so much of his time with all of those who aren't considered to be of any particular value. So he uplifts the dignity of the marginalized, the sick, the unclean, the woman, the children, the sinners. Uh, he begins his, his, his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. You know, all of the people who are, who are seen as being at the bottom of the, of the system, um, he uplifts them. He upholds their value and brings them into the center from the edge and says, no, these people are, are who the kingdom is for. Now, he's not doing that to say it's not for the other people, but I, I don't think, but he's having to challenge the kind of entrenched status systems. And he's doing this on the, on the basis of a deep theological conviction, and I'm going to call that grace, right? And so rather than just being a passive statement, which is, you know, grace means I'm forgiven even though I'm a sinner or something like that, it's actually a, it's a bigger statement than that about human value itself. Um, it's this bestowal of dignity and worth and full value upon every human soul, regardless of what you might want to say about them. And that's a kind of that's a that's a revolutionizing kind of force rather than just a passive kind of oh, it was really nice. God forgive God forgave me. Um, and so Jesus, I think, actually by adopting this way of thinking about grace, pushes us forward into a confrontation with our own judgments about others, into a confrontation with the social systems that we've set up that need to be challenged, right? So I want to read this, this parable briefly and then offer a, a few more reflections. Um, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And essentially what happens is uh, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. He's got a vineyard and he goes out early in the morning to hire some workers. And he says, look, I'll give you a denarius for working for me for the day. So he goes out at nine in the morning and he sees some more people. And he says, you go and work and I'll pay you whatever is right. He goes out at noon, he sees some more people, and he says, come and work in the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. He does it again at three, and then he even does it at five in the afternoon. He finds some people standing around, and he says, why are you standing here? And they say, no one has hired us. And he says, all right, you go and work in my vineyard as well. And then at the end of the day, he says to his kind of his foreman, right, he says, get them all in and start with the people who started working at five o'clock and give them a denarius, <laughs> which is what the first that the people hired early in the morning were told that we're going to get. So he starts with the people he hired at the end of the day, and he gives them a full denarius. But then when the people at the start of the day come along, they're like, well, of course, that means we're going to get a bit more. Um, but they don't. They still get a denarius as well. And, um, and they complain. They say, those who were hired last worked only one hour, because they only worked till 6 p.m. And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, am I, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Um, and he goes on to say, don't I have a right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Right, this incredibly um, challenging little parable, which is, I find this parable like as I read it and I'm like, yeah, that's so awesome. And then I think about... Um, Actually, because we tend to put ourselves in, in the best spot in these parables, you know, we always identify with the people we like them, we, we think are the heroes of the story. But if I think about myself as that person who maybe started working at six or seven in the morning, it's it, it might be upsetting. Um, as much as I like to think I'm a man of grace, uh, it's a challenging and confronting story. And as we start to translate that into what that might mean, you know, it's grounded again in this deep idea that everybody is, you know, the, the point of this story is, is not so much about pay for work. It's about, it says the kingdom of heaven is like, right? So it's making this, it's making this um, vivid 
description of what it's like to participate in God's way of being in community with one another, of the kingdom of heaven. And this way of being in community with one another brings everybody's value to the surface and says everyone has got worth, dignity, and value, regardless of how hard they've worked or haven't, or when they turned up or didn't. Um, you know, the parable of the prodigal son is, an, is another kind of story like that. The younger brother who goes off and squanders everything and is welcomed back, and the older brother who's grumpy out in the back in the night time saying, Surely he shouldn't get this kind of treatment now. And yet again and again and again and again, the emphasis of the Jesus story is no matter what you think somebody's done or hasn't done or what they've earned or haven't earned, they are welcomed and given value and worth and dignity by God. Um, so that's the big idea that then shapes some of the later ideas around um, grace and being saved by grace and so on. So it flows into the theology of the, of the Apostle Paul, right? So... For him, I think grace is central to the story of Jesus. And and not only does Jesus, you know, cause us to confront our judgments about others, but also our judgments about ourselves and to think about our own stories. And I think for the Apostle Paul personally, he's shaped so profoundly by his own experience. You know, so so his own experience is one of someone who participated in the murder of Christians and of the systematic kind of oppression and violence against Christians, who then later on in his life becomes a Christian and feels, you can you can see it in his letters, he feels a deep sense of regret, of pain that he carries over the kind of person that he was. And in that place, you know, so he says things like, I am the worst of all sinners, you know, so he carries this, he carries his story with him and it impacts on so much of what he says. And so when he talks about this sense of, you know, what we don't, what what I didn't deserve, or you know, he says, you know, God essentially chose to use him as this example that um, God takes the worst and is, and if God uses someone like Paul, then surely God is on the side of of everybody, right? God can use anyone, and God is for anyone. And so, I don't think what's supposed to happen in Paul's language here is that we're supposed to go and treat a, a five-year-old kid, for example, like the other apostle Paul, and say, you're an undeserving sinner who's lucky to get the grace of God. You know, that's that's not what we're supposed to do with Paul's experience. Instead, I think we look at the larger sense of what Paul's specific experience of grace might be coming out of, which again is this idea, and we keep hammering this home, of the inherent worth and dignity for all human beings that's that's kind of bestowed by God, that isn't because of anything in particular other than God's love for human beings and creation of us. Um, or bestowal of, of dignity upon us, dignity and worth. And so for Paul, this has become specifically personally transformative. You know, despite his own past, God still uh, enters into relationship with him and still uses him. Um, but but it comes from this much bigger idea of, you know, that in Christ God is showing that he, uh, that this kind of value and worth he holds for everybody regardless. And... Um, and so in Paul's life, for example, then you see this kind of theme pop up in all sorts of places. So when he says salvation is by grace, for example, he's not saying God will forgive you even though he thinks you're the worst person ever and you don't really deserve it and God's almost a bit reluctant about it, but he'll do you because he, he kind of loves you because he has to because he's God. That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, it's this, you can't, you can't earn your way into God's good books. You know, you can't earn your way into the system. Um, because if you do, then actually you start to believe that you've earned your way there and other people haven't. Uh, you start to judge yourselves harshly when you think you haven't earned enough. And you start to judge others harshly because they haven't earned enough. 
And then you start separating everyone out based on who's earned more than others in terms of God's good graces. And so instead, Paul says, no, when you say saved by grace, the, the, the sense here is not you're a terrible, terrible person necessarily, although he definitely had that sense about him, his own history, right? And that's his experience to deal with. Um, and there is an invitation and a challenge here to see our own darkness and to acknowledge our own brokenness and the ways in which we uh, can act um, towards ourselves and others in, 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 that cause deep harm. You know, we are invited to confront that. But but the big, the big idea here is then you can't take that and then sort of um, clamby your way into God's good books, but instead God's uh, kind of bestowal of dignity upon you as a human person uh, names something else about you and says that the Christ is the is the fullest way in which God could tell you this story and bring you into relationship with God. And you you see this kind of idea as well in in some of Paul's interactions socially. You know, so he he's he's very resistant to um, the external markers that that was so big, I guess, for him in the Jewish community, which were circumcision and keeping the Torah. Right now, he's not opposed to circumcision and following the Torah. What he's opposed to in books like Galatians and, and others is that you can't uh, use circumcision and keeping the Torah as a status marker to say who's better than another and who's in and who's not. So you're welcome to do it. You're welcome to follow the Torah. You're welcome to do whatever you like. But if you start telling other people they've got to do that or they're not really in in the way that you are, well, then you've you've upset grace. And so in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he gets very upset about this. And he says, you know, those people who are coming in telling you you need to all be circumcised, well, I wish they'd go the whole way and chop off their own members, right? So that's, uh, he gets quite, he gets um, testy. I was going to say testy. That's a appropriate word to use in that story. So, um, so Paul here saying, no, we don't get to use status markers to decide who's special or not, who's more in or not, and who's higher up the, the chain than others. No, we all participate because of grace, because of this universal bestowal of dignity upon humankind. And you see this uh, when Paul awkwardly stands up in front of everybody and challenges Peter, you know, so Peter's one of, you know, obviously the disciples of Jesus and one of the leaders of the church, who through kind of peer pressure starts separating himself out from non-Jewish people at dinner time and eating only with the Jewish people and, and not eating with the Gentiles. And Paul stands up in front of everyone and kind of calls him out and he says, Peter, this is wrong. And and I think the, the recognition here is that what starts out like a very small thing, it might seem like a small thing, oh look, Peter's having dinner at that table instead of that table and he won't, won't go and eat with the Gentiles. That might seem like, oh, that's just a small personal thing. But but over time, what happens is you extrapolate that out as you get serious problems within human communities because you get division, you get status, you get hierarchy, you get inverses out, and ultimately that leads to oppression and justice and often violence. And so, so Paul, being so convinced by this notion of grace um, that has captured him in the Jesus story, uh, wants to wants to stamp out that kind of status system wherever he sends it, you know. Now, um, I think, you know, perhaps I could finish with this idea. One of the most challenging parts of Jesus' teachings is that he wants to extend this kind of sense of grace even to your enemies. Now, again, the sense of grace doesn't mean you go and sit down with your enemies and um, allow them to, you know, beat you or torture you. It's not, a, it's not a kind of a passive, let them roll over the top of you kind of thing. But he does say, pray for those 
who persecute you or love your enemies, um, which means that even in our attempts to resist injustice and oppression, uh, which are so central to the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God, we do not dehumanize others, even our enemies. We don't turn them into monsters who are somehow less than human because then we allow ourselves to do all sorts of things to them. Instead, our stance towards even those who are, who are violent and who oppose us and who we see as our enemies, our, our, our challenge is to still see them as human beings with dignity and worth bestowed upon them by God, um, to see them through the eyes of grace and therefore of love and therefore to pray for them, um, even as we challenge the systems and, and, and the oppression and the violence that they might perpetuate. We don't want to dehumanize even those who seem so diver- deserving of dehumanization because that is a that is a path that takes us toward violence and um, and kind of towards setting ourselves up at the center so um all of this I think then uh, should move us towards this question of how how does that idea of grace still function how could it still be important in our contemporary moment that's a question I want to leave you with because I think this is one of the questions that again, comes back to this idea of why our faith kind of still matters, why Christian faith still matters. I, st- I think it has something to offer the conversation in our current moment. It has something still that is transformative. I think grace is agitating to powerful people who rely on manipulative systems, right? So grace is this kind of active revolutionizing force present within human communities. Um, if So if you're in a faith community of some kind, then what does it mean to allow that revolutionizing force to transform your faith community? Um, But also, for all of us, how does that sense of grace start to transform the way that we uh, build businesses, work with colleagues, treat families, you know, all of that kind of stuff? Um, How do we see the status systems that we were talking about earlier that are still present within our contemporary society and allow grace to agitate and disrupt and transform some of that. So that's the kind of the invitation, that's the challenge for us. Um, right, so in the next podcast episode, we're going to continue this little series and we're going to talk about compassion over power. And uh, so that'll be another conversation around this Why Faith Matters idea. In the meantime, of course, you can, if you if you feel like you want to support the work of Formation and therefore Edge Kingsland, who us put all this together uh, then you can go to edgekingsland.co.nz and um, I think there's some ways you can financially support the work there or get in touch with us cool Um, we'll see you next time